The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We've recently had some great conversations with directors whose documentaries are currently available on Netflix. Ken and I spoke with Rory Kennedy about Downfall, her searing indictment of Boeing and its enablers. We also spoke with Andrew Rossi about the Andy Warhol Diaries, in which he reveals the poignantly personal side of the legendary artist. And Ken spoke with Cootie Simmons and Chiki Oza about Genius, a portrait of another great artist, the young Kanye West, as he makes his way from obscurity to renown. You can find these conversations in the Top Docs feed, and you can watch these documentaries now on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to Emily Madavion, director of the documentary Bitter Brush. Bitter Brush had its world premiere at the 2021 Telluride Film Festival and was an official selection of the 2022 MoMA Doc Fortnite. The film is being released theatrically by Magnolia Pictures and can be seen in theaters starting on June 17th. And you definitely should see this film in a theater. That's something we talk about in the podcast, and I strongly urge you to do so if you can. Emily is an Emmy, Peabody, and Sundance Award-winning filmmaker. She produced, wrote, and directed the 2019 documentary Midnight Traveler, which won numerous international prizes and was nominated for a Gotham Award for Best Documentary. Emily was previously a professional dancer, and as we discuss in the podcast, has a PhD in performance studies with an emphasis on film practice as research from the University of California, Davis. She is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Bitter Brush takes place in the American West, and I think that it really does fit firmly within that tradition of great films and literature set in the West. However, it was interesting in talking to Emily that I don't know that she's too caught up in the mythology of the West. She's really focused on telling an intimate story about two women and their really special working relationship and friendship. And that totally comes across in the film. However, she also has some great sweeping cinematography and a very lush sound design, both of which really emphasize the unique setting of the film, the beauty, the harshness of this rural Idaho mountainous landscape. Besides talking about this friendship between the two women and the work that they do, we also had a chance to delve into a couple of key scenes. And this is a film where there are just some really juicy scenes that play out. One of them is over 12 minutes long. And I just love the opportunity to be able to really delve into those scenes, find out more about Emily's artistic practice and learn about how she came to know these two range riders, Holland and Coley, both memorable people, and work with them collaboratively to make this very special film. As usual, if you like this conversation, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, tell a friend. It does make a huge difference. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Emily Madavion, the director of Bitterbrush. Emily Madavion, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you for having me. Can you give us a brief logline of the film? Bitterbrush is about two young women who are spending a long summer herding cattle while they contemplate their futures. Emily, why do you make documentaries? (laughs) 
That's like an amazing question because it's not clear if it's like an existential question or if it's a question about like, why do you do this crazy thing? A little of both. Yeah. Why do I make documentaries? At a practical level, I think it's like, I love cinema. I went to film school. I love the form. I love pre-production. But then also I love improvisation. I come from a background in music and dance that has improvisation. And I like this particular type of documentary because it allows that mixture of planning and research and storyboarding and then being totally open to being present to how things are unfolding and evolving what you do with your camera and your edit according to real life people. I find that really just this very alive place to be operating. You did mention music and dance, and I do want to go back a bit further in your career. You have a PhD in performance studies with an emphasis in film practice as research from the University of California, Davis. You also do have a background in dance and music. Can you tell us a bit more about your thesis relating it to your own film practice and describe your journey from dancer to filmmaker? Oh, well, I've always been a musician and a dancer since since all, always, all my life. I also went to film school when I was quite young. And I think one of the things I like about film is that it's a medium that can be all-encompassing. It draws in sound and music, but it also draws in a kind of time-based visual understanding of the world and an engagement with space and bodies. So for me, film can encompass some elements of what dance and music have. My dissertation? You really want to know about my dissertation? <laughs> my dissertation? My, my, co my colleague has a PhD in English, so if he were here, I know he would be asking about it, so I must. My dissertation was about dance and film during and after the Tajik Civil War, which took place at the breakup of the Soviet Union. And a lot of it is on performance of gender and rising nationalism in the post-Soviet states. And also the way that cinema at the time dealt with concepts of national identity, which in Tajikistan comes out a lot through dance, and also migration as a kind of fact, often a gendered family dynamic with a lot of migration by men just taking place for economic necessity at that point. And would you say you applied any of that to this film in particular? Some critic observed that there's, you know, something about outsider women in this film. And I think that's probably a correct diagnosis of where the overlap between the two is. There's also the fact that the land in Central Asia, in Tajikistan, looks a lot like Idaho. So it's a very similar kind of landscape. I'm always interested in the dynamic of women that are kind of on the margins of these areas and how they navigate their lives in societies that are historically thought of as belonging to men. So how did you land on this topic and how did you connect with Holland and Coley? I landed on the topic because I was living there. I lived there full-time for three years and I really wanted to make something there. I found it really transformed my own perspective and my own understanding of the world to be living in this extraordinarily cyclical way that was slower and it was difficult to convey to people. And I wanted to make a film where I could toy with that. Could I convey it in cinema? And then I wanted to work with women. And so I met them, they were my neighbors basically. And I thought, 
these women are so fascinating and they're such characters and they're so funny. Maybe there's something to this. And what drew you to the American West? And I would just say Idaho is one of the most remote places, not just in the United States, but on earth, at least in certain rural parts of it. Yeah. And this area is that part. We were living in the Bay Area, my husband and I. I, I lived in the Bay Area for a long time and we were sort of slowly pushed eastward by rising rents. And we just found this land that was inexpensive and bought it to be a vacation or a summer place so that we could be homeowners and then decided that we wanted to have more time for our art. So we moved into a little tiny off-grid cabin full time. And what more can you tell us about where the film takes place? So we don't learn, I don't think in the film that it's Idaho, but what is distinctive about this particular patch of earth? It's terroir, if you will. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the kind of cultural concerns or the, the economic concerns that we see in the film are true of a large region. And it's part of why I don't bother identifying it as it, it could be Montana, it could be Wyoming, it could be Utah, Colorado. There's many places that a similar story could take place. That being said, I wanted to be very specific in the film in terms of things like getting the sound design right and making sure that it really sounded like this place and not some generic rural or Western place because the landscape was an important part of what I was trying to evoke. And so it's a place that is, it's very high mountains with high alleys, snows for the first time in September, usually every year. And for the last time in June, <laughs> it's really cold. Three seasons are cold and it's quite remote. And a lot of it is federal land. It's an area where land that has many uses and very little of it is private. And it's quite stunningly beautiful, obviously. I'm going to go back for a second to you meeting Holland and Coley. And I mean, it's quite a jump to go from oh, meeting people and saying, well, these people are fascinating people. And I think they could make interesting subjects of a movie to actually moving forward with that and gaining their trust and their cooperation. So can you talk a bit about that process? Yeah, it is. It's this insane thing to come up to somebody and say, hey, I met you. I thought you were interesting. By the way, I want to make a movie about your life and put you on screen and potentially things that you might have hither until now thought of as private. You have to be just straightforward that that's what you're asking for. And then also talk about what your vision is and listen to them and find out what things they would not want in the film or what their concerns are, what, what their passions are, what drives them. Because often the thing that's going to turn out to be the heart of the film is something that they're gonna to bring to you when they say, well, here's the thing that I'm, I've been really thinking about. So it's kind of a process of, of time, of kind of meeting people, of trying to be as transparent as you can, bringing a camera sometimes and seeing how they interact when you have a camera and whether you can capture anything that feels like their natural life or whether ultimately they're gonna say, I'm not comfortable with this. And then making sure you're just being clear really about what your project is and what role they play in it. And what was their response? <laughs> Obviously they agreed, but yeah. um, were they like, yeah, uh, sure, whatever. Or were they more participatory or did they say things like that's fine, but we're going to be doing this job for four months, as long as you don't get in our way, that kind of thing. Yes and no to all of those things in different ways. I think, you know, Holland at first was kind of like, oh, okay, maybe sure. Like, come talk to me. Coley was much more, I think, savvy to what potentially it entailed from the beginning. And so she asked me 
a lot of direct questions about what I wanted the film to say. That also meant that in, in many ways she was directing how she, like what she shared. You know, she understood that she had a power to share things that mattered to her via the film. And so that was a big part of why she agreed to be part of it. That, that she, was Coley? Coley, yeah. She really cares about some of these things and she wants people to think about them. And so she was totally on board when she realized that we had a common interest there. The being in the way of their work was something that I really was trying to balance because you can't stop them. You can't show up to make a film and in the course of filming someone doing their work, cause them not to get their work done. So I did talk to them a lot in advance about what they do and how trying then to take that information back and figure out logistics that would allow us to follow them. There were times where I felt like, uh oh, I think we may be like slowing them down now. And that was a learning curve for us. And to sort of say, okay, we're going to let him go. And like, this was that we got half a day, but they were also incredibly supportive and helpful. When some of the horses that we had gotten weren't working for our DP, it was a, a second horse of goalies that my DP was on during the snowstorm because she was like, my horse is a good horse and this horse is going to follow. And we put the DP on that horse and it was transformative because that horse wasn't trying to herd the cows, which is what had happened the day before. They were really great partners for me in that way because they were actively involved in guiding my decisions about what mattered to them and helping us understand how we could plan the logistics. There's obviously a strong tradition of film and literature that takes the American West as its subject. Besides Westerns, there are lots of other films that might have influenced you and certainly that I thought about in watching your film, Brokeback Mountain, Ang Lee's film, The Rider by Chloe Zhao, Sweetgrass, the documentary, which is set in Montana and follows shepherds as they lead their flocks of sheep for summer pasture from the Sensory Ethnography Lab. I also thought about Nicholas Ray's film, Johnny Guitar, because Joan Crawford really kicks ass in that movie. <laughs> so in terms of literature, art, and film centered on the American West, what influenced the making of Bitterbrush? I think of the list you gave, probably I would only say Sweetgrass, but maybe more the Sensory Ethnography Lab generally and the kind of theoretical approach. So, you know, I love Leviathan and Fish and Fishing, not so close to what I'm doing here, but there were so many really creative uses of the camera to transform our perspective and our understanding of the natural world. And so those kinds of things were always percolating for me of how can I bring this place to life? How can I give these animals more space in the film? Try to find ways of letting the landscape feel like more than a backdrop. I'm not like an uber fan of the Western. I just like mountains and was living in the mountains. And I was much more concerned with questions about, you know, economics and presenting a point of view that was centered on the two women's experience and coming from their experience, things like that, that aren't necessarily Western. In fact, in some ways may run counter to what we think of as the dominant mainstream Western. But because I was living there, a lot of the time it was just direct experience and hearing stories from my neighbors. There's all these buildings that are there. They're old log cabins that are dilapidated, but they're still around. This is the schoolhouse or this is where my grandmother was born, or this is the wood stove that we used to cook on. And so are all these rich stories about the place that they get your, your imagination flowing for cinematic images. It doesn't seem like you were overly focused on 
reacting to or reimagining the mythology of the American West? I really wasn't, to be honest. Yeah. Only to the extent that I didn't want the landscape to be a backdrop. I wanted to have a much more embedded understanding of the land. And I knew that there were certain versions of the Western that had sort of troubling ways of portraying the land and et cetera, et cetera. And I was trying not to do that. But on the whole, I no, I wasn't particularly concerned with it. So a bunch of questions pop into our heads, I think, as an audience while we're watching the film. One is wondering more about the terms of employment of Holland and Coley and also the macroeconomy as well of what they're doing. So what can you tell us about the specifics of like who hired them and the broader economy of which they are a small part? Range riders are working generally for a large ranch or a ranching association, moving the cattle across land over the course of a long season, protecting the cattle, protecting the herd, and also making sure that they keep moving so that areas don't get overgrazed. They are seasonal workers. I think that if we're trying to understand the kind of broader economics and how they fit in, you know, you could go to a lift driver, actually, in many ways for an understanding because you have somebody who's coming with their own car and who's making their own hours, et cetera. They're similar. They're bringing their own horses. They're bringing their own dogs. They're not paid by the hour. They're getting a flat amount and it's not a lot and it's not long-term and it doesn't come with health insurance. It seems like they have a lot of autonomy. Is that the case? Yeah. And I think what makes you good at this job is that you understand the whole of it. You understand what your task is and you know how to strategize and be self-directed because there isn't really anybody who's going to show up and chastise you. There's basically nobody else up there most of the time. And yet at the same time, at the end of the season, there are markers that you did a good job, right? That there aren't massively overgrazed areas here and no grazing that happened there, that the cattle are healthy that the numbers that you got are good, that there hasn't been huge loss depredation. So all of these things are indicators that you were there, you showed up every day, you did your job. But on a day-to-day -day basis, you have a ton of autonomy. Obviously, we've talked about how space and the landscape are important factors in the film, but also time is as well. You've chosen to follow one season with the two women, and a lot of the film focuses on the daily rhythms of the job, and there are other elements of time as well. How did you use time to help tell the story? Time was one of the things that, when, when I said that I like that balance between the improvisation and the things you don't know that are going to happen and the things you can plan, the approach to time was one of those things that I could plan. I understood the scope of the job in terms of the seasons, and I understood the way that the rhythms of the weather and the rhythms of that life affect how you live. And I went into it knowing I wanted to try to capture that. So that was a lot of what was kind of pre-shot listed, if you will, not to the point that I knew exactly what every shot would be necessarily, but sometimes, and at least to the extent of knowing that I wanted to show up for certain types of moments. And this is really, I think, because one of the things I found so transformative about living there was the sense of time. My own experience of how time flows across a day or across a summer was just so different when I was waking up and stoking a wood stove and contending with sudden hailstorms in July. I found myself personally transformed by that. And so I wanted to get that into the film as more than 
kind of decoration or, you know, more than a flourish that's just a pretty ending, but something that actually it shapes the way you live. So fundamentally, this is a character study and a film about friendship, I would say. So let's talk about Holland and Coley. At the beginning of the film, there's a scene where Holland tries to get a horse in the horse trailer and he really bucks like crazy and she's there inside the trailer and could be crushed. And yet she's totally calm and unafraid, at least that's on the surface. And we can't help but be impressed, I think, in that moment. So just using that as one example, what did you want to establish about Holland and Coley early on in terms of character, both as individuals and in relation to each other? I think you hit on the reason why that's right at the start of the film. I wanted us to understand that you have these humans who are not large people physically, who have an incredible degree of skill. And even in the face of unruly, really large animals, they know how to handle themselves. They're not afraid. And it just sets up right away that both that there is some stakes here to what they go out and do every day, that there is a certain level of, I don't want to say danger, but there is risk involved. And then also that these are two women who really know what they're doing. They're really experts at what they do. So that's that's why I began there. But then I think you're right that the heart of the film was really about their friendship. And I think they have a really beautiful friendship because they've known each other for a long time. And they have an extraordinarily deep trust because of the work that they do together over that summer and because of the kind of life experiences that they've shared. And that's something that I hadn't seen emphasized in too many films. The idea that two women could have this kind of deep friendship over here, separate from questions of romance or talking about boys or whatever else we might think of as coming up when women are together, that in fact, they are talking about careers and money and all these things, but also just riding together in quiet and being being their, their whole selves together for months on end. I mean, it's kind of incredible. They don't fight. They know who the other person is and how to be there for each other and when to back off. And, I and love they, they even figure out without bickering who gets which bed. They do. I know. <laughs> One of the things that I found really interesting to watch was their dynamic in terms of leadership out on the range. And from what we see, it seems like Holland is the leader in that she has the vision for, okay, here's what we need to do. And here's a plan that we can implement to hopefully get done what we need to get done. And Coley is very willing to react to that plan, give feedback and go along with it if she agrees with it. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on leadership hmm. in terms of their dynamic in the film. You notice something that a lot of people don't notice. And the reality is that Holland was the boss um, officially, as far as the hiring goes, and had the power to hire the person who would work with her. And so she chose Coley, who she knew well. And so you had a, an interesting situation where two people who were close friends were in this position, theoretically at least, of kind of boss and person who is employed by, you know, or has been, is working under them. But they're both highly skilled and they respect each other. And at the same time, Coley wanted Holland to, to realize her own excellence. So Coley was not out to undermine her. Coley wanted to see her succeed. And so I think that that dynamic where there's a mutual respect for each other's skill and a mutual desire to see each other succeed is lovely because it allows Holland, who was, I think, an unwilling boss, if you will. She didn't really want to be the boss. She was kind of pushed into it because of being so good at it. 
it allowed her to flourish and to show how excellent she really is. I really felt like we were seeing a model of leadership. Yeah, but it comes so much from knowing that the other person has a perspective that is grounded in some kind of experience and knowledge that has value. And even if they had slightly different ideas, there's so much respect there that they would work it out. So we haven't talked about Elijah yet. There is a third person in the film, Elijah, who is with Holland romantically. So it gives us this triangularity between the three of them, which is fascinating to watch. And it also adds an element of sexuality to the film, a little bit of an undercurrent. Very early on, there's a scene where I think it's the first time we meet Elijah. He walks up to Holland to kiss her and Holland with one eye toward one of your cameras says, hey, right now. (laughs) And this kind of establishes this on camera romantic relationship. I'm just curious, was Elijah always part of the film? Yeah, I think The question of how do we establish him? How many scenes is he in? We were working that out in the edit because as becomes apparent later, it's important that we understand that he exists. And at the same time, it is fundamentally a film about their friendship. So it was a delicate balance that we needed to strike. So he ends up being in, I think, three scenes or four scenes total across the film, but they're kind of, they're spaced out. So we don't forget him. And it's an interesting thing because there is always that looming question of sort of the cowboy or the role of the male figures in the world of these two women, you know, and we understand probably, I I think that normally they don't have this space that is kind of sealed off where only women are together working. And so I had to be careful because Elijah I didn't want him to stand in for all of that all by himself. You know, I I wanted to make sure that he was established as Holland's romantic partner and this figure that would come and go and turn out to be important. It's also interesting in terms of traditional gender roles that he wears glasses, I think. Mm -hmm. So he, in some ways, and the way he does give the women their space and defers to them, he does represent, I think, a different kind of cowboy, a more contemporary one. Certainly beginning the film with him kissing her goodbye as she leaves to go to work. He's also obviously working in this field. We can see in the film that he does this too. But I love that we begin with the woman leaving for work and he's happily sending her off. And in fact, many, I would say the majority of ranching families, the dynamic is such that the women and the men in the family, they all do work. They all know these jobs. And there's an expectation that the women are excellent at this too, even if there are certain kinds of gender norms that may at first glance indicate to us that there's a strong whiff of male dominance. So it's not strange at all, really, for a male rancher to to say, hey, honey, go have a nice time doing this incredibly difficult physical labor. And yet, obviously, traditionally, it's been a male-dominated sphere. And yet, we don't actively see any sort of gender discrimination against Coley and Holland. But is that something that they ever talked about with you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Coley and I commiserated a bit. But I think... Ultimately, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up and you think to yourself, I'm going to go do the thing that I feel purpose in doing that I know I'm good at. And it's only when something intrudes from the outside world and reminds you that somebody else thinks you're not meant to be there that that happens. And so I wanted to make a film that kind of mirrored that, that it began with their experience and within their experience of the world 
They wake up every morning. They know this is what they're good at. They know this is what they want to do and they go do it. But it's of course correct that it is largely a male dominated space. And that in ranching families, the ranches are typically belong to the fathers, the sons, and we see wives and daughters who are highly skilled helping run them. But historically, at least not as many ranches in the United States, at least that are run by women. And that does seem to be an issue for Coley and her family, correct? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. and you know, if I could sort of go snap and wave my magic wand, I would give Coley her own bit of ranch to run because she knows she can do it. She's done it before, but the opportunity doesn't just doesn't materialize easily for someone in her position. They certainly have a level of self-consciousness about traditional gender roles and how they're subverting them. There are a couple of scenes where they joke about, we need wives, or you're going to make a phenomenal housewife, said sarcastically, <laughs> which is met with a slap. So, <laughs> you know, I'm just curious if their consciousness of subverting traditional gender roles is something that also came up. I think it's an interesting thing about this particular section of American culture, because you have in many ways very conservative gender roles that are enshrined in ideas like wife, housewife. And at the same time, you have women doing highly physical labor and often working right alongside men. And this has been true for a long time. It's a strange tension. And that's part of what I wanted to get at is that the women themselves play with these multiple versions of how womanhood is socially constructed. And I don't think it has an easy answer. And that's part of what's, to me, really interesting. In terms of your aesthetic approach and your approach to the form, in contrast to your last film, Midnight Traveler, which you produced, wrote and edited, which was shot using three cell phone cameras. This yeah. one is about as far away from that cinematically as I think you could get in terms of the imagery. It's beautifully shot, very carefully framed, seems like a mixture of handheld and maybe tripods and perhaps a drone or two. Um, no drones, no drones. No drones. Okay, no good. Drones. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. Can you talk about how you and your cinematographers came up with the visual approach to the film and met the very real physical challenges of the environment? That was the big thing was I started writing down what I wanted it to look like, what I wanted the scenes to be, what I wanted to get. It was clear that I wanted things that were both kind of large format moments of sky and stars or mountains, and then also things that could go really close with them embedded in the work, which ranged over mountains and miles and places you can't get to except by horseback. So designing kits that would allow us to do that was a big part of it, using different cameras and different camera setups for different ways of shooting so that we used one really gorgeous big camera that couldn't go on horseback for many of the scenes which if you see the film, you'll recognize as being such. And then we did scale back and say, okay, we've got to get something that we can shoot from horseback with while riding. And so that meant something you could hold with one hand while you were riding. That entailed a certain degree of visual sacrifice, but the trade-off was being able to be right there with them in the saddle and things like being in the snowstorm with them, which have such a visual richness that they hold up next to the other things. Yeah, the snowstorm scene is epic and unforgettable and lends a real emotional depth somehow to the whole film. It's my favorite scene. 
<laughs> I love it. You know, and I, there's something about that. It is a classic cowboy image. I was just saying I didn't have a lot of Western references, but there's a very famous cowboy photographer from the area we lived in and a very famous image of a cowboy in a snowstorm holding up a lantern, bringing a cap in on horseback. I don't know if you've ever seen this image, but the cowboy in that photo is our neighbor and he spent his childhoods in that cabin. So when this snowstorm blew in and there was this pregnant woman on horseback, like ducking her head down and just pushing forward for me, it was this kind of classic image. But now with many of the gender roles changed, I wanted that scene to run long so we would have a chance to really think about what physically it feels like to be pulling off what they were doing. We'd certainly feel that. And also it's kind of haunting in a way as well, because it feels like it's outside of time and place. There are a couple of memorable scenes I want to touch on. One is a scene where Holland breaks a colt, and it's a very long scene. It's about 12 minutes long, and it's just fascinating to watch what she does. It takes place in this pen, and she takes us through this whole process. Not that she's taking us through it. She's doing it, but we're watching. And it's highly performative, but it's obviously an important part of the work she needs to do. I'm just curious, what do you think Holland demonstrates in this scene to the horse, first of all, yeah. to those of us watching and maybe to herself? Right. Well, that's a good question. I, I like the way you've laid out those layers. I think to us, we're seeing both the high level of skill and there's this moment elsewhere in the film where she says they're not pets. You know, there is a level of there's a necessity here, like you will give in. There's a kind of it's like a coercion that borders on potentially being brutal on some level in terms of what the human being is saying to the horse. And we see that. And then I think with what she's doing, the other thing we're seeing is this incredible attention and the way that she and the horse are locking eyes. It's a strange mixture of a kind of bonding that's going on in our resistance. It's incredibly powerful to watch it transpiring real time because there is this connection being built between the two of them. And she expresses then, and I've heard her say since then, that this is the thing that she's always felt she's really good at. She's been becoming more comfortable with her role leading in other areas, but breaking a cult is something she feels she knows how to do. And something that I think gives her an understanding of who she is and gives her a feeling of, you know, of kind of confidence in her skill set. Yeah, a key moment is when Elijah starts to give advice and she just gives him this stare and he immediately <laughs> backs down because he knows this is her show. I love that part. We were thinking about it really carefully because Elijah doesn't have a lot of moments, but I think it's such a beautiful dynamic because you see the way that the two of them just in a very friendly way duke it out. And she's like, this is my thing. And he's like, oh, okay. Yeah, and ultimately she really doesn't need his help. No, she doesn't. <laughs> There's another incredible scene in the film, and it's a campfire scene, and campfire scenes are a staple of songs, books, movies about the West, because they connect directly to storytelling. And your film has some memorable ones, but the one that really stood out to me was when Coley tells the incredibly moving story of how her mother suffered a brain aneurysm while riding her cult, and ultimately died and how she was able to spend some really important time with her 
important to Coley because her mom was in a coma with her in the hospital. And then she concludes by saying, she's just a hell of a woman. I feel closer to her than when she passed. I just really wanted to know what it was like to be present for this story and what it told you about Coley as a person. So Coley volunteered that story. I'd never heard it before. And I think now that I have known her for longer, I realize how much her mother means to her and how much her mother represents her a kind of vision for digging in and building something from the ground up as a woman in the West. And the thing about Coley that I always find really remarkable is that she has this, this incredible humility and this incredible ability to be very present for anyone who's around her. She comes from a small town and so she, she sees everyone and she acknowledges them. And I, I think it makes her such a rich observer of things around her and it makes her a great storyteller because she, she's not in a fog, you know, when you put her in a city, she sees every single face and she, she's confused by why we don't all say hello to every human we pass. So it's overwhelming to put her in a crowd like that for her, but it's, not because she's needing to be alone. It's because she's so incredibly present for whatever is right in front of her. So the way that she told that story was just quintessentially her. And all I did was shorten it slightly in the edit in order to bring out those moments and allow us to focus on what I thought were these incredible insights about her mother's life and its importance to her. There aren't any reaction shots either, right? There's one, I think. Just okay. From but it, it's pretty minimal. Really, the story is allowed to wash over us, the audience. So it's very well edited. Yeah, because it's something like that is not about us. And it's other than insofar as um, I'm hoping that we would listen and give her attention in the same way that she does when she's hearing people. So we've talked a bit about the visual approach in terms of the sound design. What can you tell us? And I'll just add on to that and say, talk about Bach piano music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get to the music in a second. The music is something everyone notices, but the sound design was quite carefully constructed. I love my sound designer and I think he's wonderful. He also worked on Midnight Traveler, which was also an enormous amount of work. Very different, less cow and horse hooves in that one. I actually brought him out to the location to do recordings, to get the sound of the cabin so that he could hear it himself. I didn't want a kind of generic Western. I wanted that place. And so we were really thoughtful about it. And, you know, I found myself as I was writing my notes for sound design, realizing how picky I had become that certain times of year meant very specific bird sounds. <laughs> and, and, and I was initially apologizing to him. I'm like, I'm so sorry, but May means this bird to me in this place. And he was like, it's great. Don't worry. So we really worked on that quite carefully. But the Bach piano music was one of those moments where I knew I was picking something that audience would recognize as a sort of directorial choice, as something that I was adding on. And I'm fine with that. I wanted to say to the audience, this is not some twangy, cutesy cowgirl film, right? This is a film about two women with a great deal of expertise and dignity, with a kind of spiritual richness to their life to their worldview. And Bach piano music 
to me says all those things. So that's why I picked it. And when people say that it stands out or it's incongruous, I was saying, well, all music does, right? I mean, what would be congruous? There's no source music in the mountains other than the wind, and the, you know, all those kinds of things. But there's nothing like source music. I think we have assumptions that I didn't want to play into about the quote unquote, like culturally appropriate music. Yeah. And I think it fits with the fact that, for instance, occasionally they break the fourth wall and look at the camera. So it's not like you're pretending that you're not there. No. And I don't want us to do that. I think that would be a kind of false pretense. There's no kind of version of a film like this that exists without me showing up. And my presence is changing things. And it's just not my way of thinking about what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to hide. It's not a film about me, so I'm not making myself a character, but I don't mind that there are times that we realize that they're talking to me or that they look at me. <laughs> so this is probably my final question here, which is the film does mostly take place during this one season, but then there is an epilogue. And I guess this is a spoiler alert. You should have seen the film already, but if you haven't, this is a spoiler alert because in this epilogue, Coley's working a night shift on a ranch. Holland is with Elijah and about to give birth to her daughter. And at the end of her shift one night, Coley calls Holland and they talk first about Coley's job situation and then about Holland's pregnancy, which has been a difficult one. At least she had a health scare during the pregnancy. And we can see Coley getting teary-eyed at that point. And the call ends with them saying they love each other. And I think for me personally, those are the words I wanted to hear the most at the end of this journey with these two women who have this incredible friendship. It was cathartic. I want to get your take on how important in cinematic storytelling and real life terms you think it was for the two of them to actually speak those words out loud. And they don't make a big deal of it. I don't want to imply that they do. but They do say yeah. it. They have this close bond and that is how they talk to each other. And I just didn't include them specifically saying I love you until the end of the film. And I think it comes out there in part because they are on the phone. And so they have a reason to be hanging up and saying goodbye. And that's how they close. It's always like closing with that kind of embrace that ensures that you left things in the best possible way. It is a really deep friendship. And we don't often think about that kind of really deep loving air that close friends have, but it's an incredibly important bond in both of their lives. And I feel as if the film couldn't make any sense without seeing that moment. And we needed to get there with them to really see the work they do, to see the trust that they had in each other across the whole of the film in order to sort of hear those words in the light that they're meant to be heard. Very quickly, if I can, the film has elements of light and dark throughout. And I'm just curious if you see it as an optimistic film. Hmm. I do. I see it as an optimistic film because I think that whenever you have someone who has something they want down there, down the road, even if it's not something that's really easy for them to attain, and we see them taking those risks and being willing to keep struggling for it, for me, that's the only way you ever get it. So I find some people have told me they find Coley's situation sad. I find it incredibly inspiring because I think she's brave and strong and I want to see her get there. And I think the only way that she does it is to take the risks that she is taking in terms of her career, be willing to keep pushing. So for me, that's a, something I view as 
the kind of optimism, even if it's acknowledging that it's not always easy to get what you want in life. She doesn't know how she's going to get it or if she's going to get it, but she has faith. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned trust before, and clearly the two of them trust each other, and they obviously trusted you as a filmmaker and a friend. And I think that we trust you as well as an audience member. We feel like we're in incredibly good hands because of the intimacy and also the love I think that you have for this land and for these people. So I just want to congratulate you on the film and urge everybody to see this film in a theater. It deserves to be seen on a big screen, heard with theater speakers. It's a gorgeous film and that's how you should experience it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. After Everything we've all seen with COVID, the idea that people could even have the opportunity to see the film in a theater is such a relief for me because that is how it was envisioned. If you can, or if you'd like to, what's up next for you? Without giving too much away, let's see, I am working on a new feature length documentary that would be about climate science in Antarctica. Pretty different. Yeah. It does have a lot of women in it, I should say. So it is still women, cold place work. There's a certain similarity. Thank you so much for being here and congratulations on the film. Thank you, Ken. Do you have a recommendation for a hidden gem, a documentary that doesn't quite get the recognition you think it deserves? I feel like that could be a double-edged sword. If I pick something, I'm implying that somehow it wasn't recognized, but I think of the films that I've seen recently, one that I keep talking about is listening to Kenny G, Penny Lane's film. What I love among other things is that Penny is like, she's wry and ironic and funny and smart. And a lot of times a documentary, I think we expect self-seriousness, but then there's actually this real heft to the central question of the film about taste. So I really like that film. I don't know if it's under recognized, but I thought it was amazing and I keep talking about it. You're the second one to recommend that film. So <laughs> definitely need to check it out. 